This morning, we have some stuff to talk about. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we talked about loneliness. And I want to start this morning with a reading from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. Uh, if you've been through seminary, then you know this book well. And if you are a lover of amazing literature, then you also know this book well. Uh, last week, we talked about loneliness and belonging. And especially the sort of crisis of loneliness that a lot of us find ourselves within. Now, here's the other side of that. Loneliness can drive us into belonging. In a way that confuse us into sort of homogenous tribal groups. Christian community can become this. And so this morning we're going to talk about the crisis of difference and the promise of unity. But before we do, we need to talk about what the risk is in this conversation. Bonhoeffer is talking about living life together. He has created with some other Christians a sort of underground seminary movement inside of Nazi Germany. And this is a way for folks to be formed in the image of Christ in the midst of a culture that would form them in another way. But there is always a danger in the midst of this kind of fragile community that we will bring with inside of it, inside of our own hearts and into that community, our own needs for that community. That we would ground them in something other than what centrally unifies us. So here's what he says. He says, those who want more than what Christ has established between us do not want Christian community. They're looking for some extraordinary experiences of community that were denied them elsewhere. Such people bring confused and tainted desires into Christian community. And it's precisely at this point that Christian community is most often threatened from the very outset by the greatest danger. The danger of internal Poisoning, the danger of confusing Christian community with some wishful image of pious community, the danger of blending the devout heart's natural desire for community with the spiritual reality of Christian community. On numerable occasions, a whole community has been shattered because it lived on the basis of a wishful image. This morning as we talk about unity, I need to say out loud for myself and I need to say out loud for you too, we are not after a utopia when we have this conversation. The need for a utopian vision of what it means to be together will be the thing that undoes our very being together. So would you join me in prayer and let's begin. God, settle our anxious hearts. Open our ears and our minds to receive. Open my mouth to speak. Shed of us illusions in anything that we've brought into this room that might create further divisions. This time is yours. Amen. If you have a Bible, you're going to have to open it to seven different passages at once. Uh, we're going to start with this word. Uh, other than Perlman, who knows what this word means? Yeah, Zach, what, what, does, it, what does it mean to you? Echad. Wholeness or oneness. This is, our, this is our word for the day. If you hold on to anything, hold on to this language of echad. It's a guttural. I love saying gutturals. Echad. You hear that? It's not echad, like a Echad. Uh, it shows up principally in the Shema. We know at this point what the Shema is. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the central confession 
of the people of God given to them by Moses. It's also a U2 song. It is a U2 song? Bono knows a lot about Christian theology. So, and I mean that, I mean that honestly, right? Okay. Uh, so Shema, that's where we get this language of Echad. Echad does mean a sort of unified wholeness. Uh, it can mean one, but this is one of those words that gets really slippery and expansive. Uh, so the language in the Shema is, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is Echad, right? The Lord is one, or the Lord is whole, or the Lord is the only one. It encompasses a lot of ground in this word. So here's the Shema in Hebrew. And we're going to say it together because we just, this is one of these. Sing it. I don't know how to sing it. That's scary. If I try to sing, I'm going to make up a tune right now. And then everyone will know all of my deficiencies. I'm not ready for that kind of vulnerability, Roman. <laughs> Here is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. You've heard it before. Hear it again. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So I'm going to ask if we would say it in three divisions. We'll start with the first line. I'll say it and then we'll say it together. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. It's really good. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is a prayer that is said in the mornings and in the evenings. It is the most commonly recited phrase in the Jewish liturgical cycle. It is central to what it means to be the people of God, to know that this is the God who you follow. Immediately after this is the love the Lord your God with all of your, right, that Jesus picks up on. Jesus knows this by heart, carries it around when Jesus walks through the world. The Shema Yisrael. Now, this language of beginning to identify God with some kind of precision is where we want to start today. Because as we learn who we are and what we are called to be, it will sort of generate from a correct understanding of who God is. And God is echad. God is whole. God is unified. God is not divided. A little bit later, we're going to talk about the Trinity, which is also a very slippery set of terms. But it fits within this language of echad. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. We're going to move today. If you want to move with me, you can with your Bible. If not, you can just hear these words as part of the oral tradition delivered to you. Tovu vavohu. Achad shows up early in the story of creation. Uh, Echad is not sort of a flattening out of things to bring them into a wholeness. In fact, a, a flattened out homogenous Material existence is what was going on before God created. It's the language of wildness and waste. So, in the creation story, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? We're in Genesis 1 right now. And the earth was tovu vavohu, was wildness and waste. There was formless void. And darkness covered over the face of the deep And a wind from God or the breath of God swept over the face of the waters. In the beginning, before God speaks, there is this undifferentiated mass that we would call material existence. Whatever it was, it was not echad. It was just kind of, right? Tovu vavohu is the best way to talk about it. It's barely a word in Hebrew. It's more like waste schmaced. 
That's how one person translates it. So before, there was not a chad. And then God speaks. And in God speaking, God creates. But God creates in a very uh, unique God-like way. God creates by distinguishing, by separating. Takes this undifferentiated mass and gives it self-differentiation. That's a fancy word for church. Takes light and separates darkness from light and creates day and night. And that was the Echad day. That was the first day. And the second bit of creation is separating waters from that which is not waters. At the time, there just seems to be water everywhere. And water in the biblical imagination is the language of chaos. And God takes the water and it says that God gathers it so that land can appear says it gathers it into one place, or into an achad, into a wholeness or a unity. So there was chaos, and then there is order. And inside of order, there is this achad essence. That's how things get started. The next place that achad shows up is a little bit later, and the two become one flesh. This is the story of us. Right? Last week we talked about it's just not good that humanity would exist alone. That loneliness is our not tov, our low tov state. So God creates community, creates relationship, creates the possibility for encounter. And inside this multitude, right? Now we don't just have the human, we have humans. Inside this multitude, that God endows with the ability to become more, be fruitful and multiply, is this holism. That is the created order as things get started. And the two, or in the many, shall become echad. So here's what I want you to hold on to as we get started today. Within this echad, within this wholeness or this oneness, this unity, there is always a plurality. It is not a collapsing into. In fact, if you think that, for instance, marriage, which is often what we think about when we think about the two becoming one flesh, is a collapsing of identities into a new identity, I've got some counselors you should see. Right? The collapsing of identity into a flattened out That's not what the Bible is talking about here. God separates to create. God gives things their distinctiveness, gives them their personhood, their identity, and invites them into a wholeness. Hold on to this thought because we're going to need to come back to it. There's another place where this language of unity shows up, and it's a very strange place. It's in the book of Exodus. It's the section in Exodus where they begin to talk about the tabernacle. And it says that in the tabernacle, is they're given instructions on how to build the thing. The tabernacle is the tent that moves with the people through the wilderness, becomes the home for God so they can know this God is both everywhere, right? Encompasses all of creation and even past it, but also is located with us, is traveling with us. And so when God gives Moses the instructions, the blueprints or the recipe for how to build this thing, it is built, constituted 
by a plurality. There are ten curtains, in fact. And it gives these instructions about there are going to be five curtains over here. There's going to be five curtains over there. And on each of these curtains, they're supposed to be knit together in such a way that there's like 50 loops. And in these 50 loops, there are 50 clasps. And then it says at the end of this long section on numbers, ten curtains, fifty loops and clasps, that it will make one temple. Echad, again. That something about what God is always doing in the world is bringing it back to cohesion. Back to wholeness. The reason they even needed a tabernacle was because the whole thing had started to split apart. The tabernacle becomes like a new Eden. It becomes a new, this is how God meant for the world to be, in its unity. Right? That's the tabernacle project. Now from there, if we're talking about tabernacle, the next place we should go for a chad is this language here. This joining together. And the word became flesh. Now, who are we talking about when we use this language of the word became flesh? Jesus is the right answer this time, right? It's not Exodus. Who knew? The word became flesh is from John 1. John tells the story of creation again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Then a little bit later, and the word, the logos became sarks. The word became flesh, and it tabernacled among us. Shekinah is the language in Hebrew. So Jesus then becomes the image of the tabernacle, this unified presence of God. Now, here's the thing. I've said this before, too. Uh, Anytime we try to force a choice where God has left attention or a paradox is the beginning of all heresy. And this is one of those places, the identity of Jesus the Christ, where we often enter into heresy. Which is it? Is Jesus the Christ human or is Jesus the Christ spirit, right? Which, which one is it? Is it spirit or is it flesh? And over and over again in the early church history, they're trying and struggling over this. They kill people over this. They have councils about this. They write all kinds of creeds to settle this. The way that they come to consensus is to say that somehow there is a plurality inside the person of Jesus the Christ that is both word and flesh. And just like the language of marriage, what God has joined together, we should not split apart. So Jesus steps into this big story that God has been telling about bringing everything back into unity. That's the word became flesh. Now, at some point, we're going to have to talk about, and this is like the sermon that I'm always scared to preach because then I sound like a heretic, the language of the Trinity. Every single metaphor I've ever heard for the Trinity, it skates the edge of heresy. Because we're trying to talk about a plurality with inside of a unity. This, the best language I've heard for it is the language of, um, it's a really fancy word, perichoresis which means the dance, right? It's like the language of divine dance that each of the members of God's inner unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are sort of swinging and sashaying and dancing. See, I'll dance, but I won't sing. Sometimes one taking the lead, sometimes another, and even now I'm adventuring right into into heresy. God's very essence 
is unified and yet plural. Three in one. So at the bedrock foundation of existence, of the universe, of all that has been made, of all we see and cannot see, is God. And the bedrock existence of God is this unity, is this echad, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is echad. We say that with firm conviction as Christians who believe in the triune God because we're saying two things at once that are a paradox and to unravel them is to enter into something that they are not. All of this, all of this is in the background. When we talk about unity today, what we are not talking about is uniformity. That is a collapsing. And here we get to the danger of belonging. Can we invite, can I invite you all into a deeper sense of belonging without you having to flatten out yourself to be here. It's going to take like 10 or 20 or 50 sermons on the Trinity to fully understand what it means that God can be plural and unified. But one thing it means is that the triune God is diversity embraced. Not shunned or feared and not flattened. And then we are called to reflect the God who made us. The question then becomes, why do we often look flattened? That's the crisis. When Jesus prays in John 17, which you heard read by Zach and Saskia, this is the last prayer that Jesus utters before his arrest. Asking on behalf of these, his followers, but also on behalf of those who are not yet at the party, to believe that they may all be one. The language for all is the language of pas, which means all, the whole thing, everybody. They may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Can you feel what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is spinning out a very complicated bit of theology that is told in the old story and inviting us into it. One other clarification real quick as we talk about belonging and we talk about community. We are late to the party. Save if you, uh, if you grew up inside of Judaism, then you were early to the party. We are late to the party as Christians. God's invitation first goes out to the people of Israel, and then we become adopted into that story. So when we hear this prayer, we hear it first as outsiders, like way out over here. When Jesus says, I'm saying this not just for those present, for those who have not yet believed, those not yet believed is us, the goyim, the Gentiles, the outsiders, the ones who don't have access to the temple or the story. We get enfolded into it or engrafted onto it. 
I say that to say we should assume a humble posture. As those late but still invited. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given them. So that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that we may be completely one. The language of completion is the language of perfection, which is also the language of wholeness. It's the language of telos. We saw it in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's the language of telos. To be perfectly echad. That's Jesus' last prayer for us. Jesus shows up on the scene as the Messiah, as word made flesh. And the two shall become echad, right? It's the old story told again. And Jesus lives that story in unity with God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. Jesus is saying, my unity with God might be humanity's unity with themselves and with us. And Jesus prays this last prayer and then immediately, immediately is arrested and killed. So, I'm not simply telling you something you're going to love to hear today. Right, This invitation into unity is not pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. But I want to read you a quote from a word I love, wanting. It's not a word we use a lot anymore, this language of wanting. It comes from Julian of Norwich. But it's an old word that we would do well to recover. She says, the love of God creates in us such a wanting That when it's truly seen, no person can separate themselves from another person. Again, the love of God creates in us such a wanting. That when it is truly seen, no person can separate themselves from another person. So after I've said all that, we should just kind of buy into that there is this crisis of difference and division, but there is this promise of unity. And then everybody said amen, and we passed the offering, and we all went home. We know our marching orders now. Everything's going to be fine. No one is nodding. Probably because you know I've still got a while to talk. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. There is this and yet moment. Because on the other side of the promise of unity is, and I'm going to use this word intentionally, the sin of disunity. The sin of our division and divisiveness. Of our fragmentation and dismemberment. What it does at its core is it fragments the image of God in the world. We are invited into, ordained into, the echadness of God. At God's bedrock existence, we are invited into that reality. And our inability to live into that reality, it fractures the image of God in the world. So when Jesus says, 
make them one so that the world may believe. There is a reason that the world does not believe. And Jesus tells it to us. It is not so hidden. All kinds of different figures across time and history have said, like, I'm really into this Jesus guy, but I cannot stand those Jesus people. We have work to do. Story the Bible tells is one of the Chad running through it, right? Running from creation, from humanity's relationality, to temple, to tribes, to Jesus. But along with that story is another story that runs parallel to it, right? And it's the story of fragmentation. That there is God's existence in the world, and that there is our story. And that gets told in the realm of family. Now, if we're going to talk about, if we're going to talk about unity, then we're going to talk about family. And before or during, The conversation about how we belong to one another in a way that honors the image of God in the world, we are going to have to confront our most intimate stories about how we do not belong to one another. And I know some of your stories. And I know my story. And it is true That often the most painful locations of our dismemberment are the closest to home. And that's how the story is told in the Bible. It's told about the first children of the first family, Cain and Abel. Last week we told this story in the realm of loneliness. That each move in the story's fracturing is a movement away from relationship and into isolation. Right? They leave the garden, then Cain is cast away from the family, and then all of a sudden everyone is just me and no longer us. That story can also be told as one of disunity. That brothers, right, siblings can never find their way into true belonging with one another. Every single family in those early stories in the Bible are stories of fragmentation, of siblings who can't get along. And that intimate story is telling a much larger story. First it's Cain and Abel, and it keeps going. Soon it's the 12 tribes, right? Those 12 brothers, but then one of them tries to sell another and tries to kill another and all of a sudden, right? And then they become a nation, but then the nation fragments into north and south and then the nation goes into exile, right? It's the whole thing, a fragmented family. So it's not like, it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the first thing that Jesus does is gather back the 12 brothers, gathers the 12 tribes as the 12 disciples and puts them in a room, puts them in a community and gives them a task to work in the world. And they are nothing like one another, right? This is not uniformity. This is diversity in all of its messiness, which is why they keep fighting. This is why they keep bickering and they keep trying to one-up each other. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Am I the greatest? Is he the greatest? Who, right? That's the thing. 
So with the story that God is telling about who God is, of unity and plurality or diversity, is this story of our inability to hold together and instead to fragment. Now, fragmentation is where we live these days. There's a book I want to recommend to you. In fact, we're going to have some copies of it next week. Uh, it's a book by uh, the scholar Christina Cleveland called Disunity in Christ, Uncovering the Hidden Forces that Keep Us Apart. It is brilliant. It won a bunch of awards in 2013, and uh, I've been rereading it this last week. So we're going to dive a little bit into some of the things that she shares about why this is so true, this disunity that seems to reign. Reconciliation is the language of a coming back together of things that were split apart. One of the early Christian writers in the New Testament, Paul, in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, says that the ministry that has been entrusted to us is the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ there is a new creation. There is a new unity. And then Paul gives this command, this imperative to be reconciled. Reconciliation is one of these words I don't want to toss around like it's just simply stepping into it. Like it's so easy. Have you ever made up with family? It is brutal. If you've made it through the healing process, it's beautiful. But it's brutal. It's painful to tell the truth of your exile. If it's easy, then it's probably not the gospel. Reconciliation runs straight through the cross, which means it runs straight through the shadows of death. This is not easy work. It is no wonder that so many churches, so many communities have decided for an easier way. Folks ask what we're doing here at First Baptist Church Pasadena often. What's the, what's the goal? What's the, what's the vision? We're trying to become Christians. Not holding on to stubbornly with the ego that we have arrived, but we are trying to become Christians. And reconciliation is part of the process. And it is painful if it is true. Because here is the truth. For so many people, and at some point all of us, there are other identities that take precedence over our identity and allegiance to the Jesus way. One writer calls them mega identities, and it's terrifying. I've been reading about these lately. Mega identities are when all of these separate identity spheres begin to fuse into one. And when you fuse all of these different ways to belong into one mega identity, if that ever is threatened, it's like you become nothing. 
Now, here's where that becomes salient in today's conversation, right? And everybody needs to take a deep breath. For so many of us, our primary identity in the world has been coded in the language of politics. What that means is that our speech, our truth-telling, has become constrained by that mega-identity of red or blue, of D or R, of left or right. And this is not by accident, this is by design. Because fragmented people are scared people, and scared people are manipulable, malleable. Able to be pointed in a direction. I promise you, if we wanted to grow this church in a hurry, I would tell you who your enemy is, and then we would rally to metabolize against it. Oh, friends, if I gave you a simple version of this, the place would fill up because we are craving belonging. And we will sacrifice Sometimes even the gospel for it. Here's a place where this became incredibly pressing. We discovered that there were limits to reconciliation in the last couple of years. One place in my own life where this became apparent um, so we're, we're an American Baptist church here with this beautiful long history. When I grew up, I grew up inside of a Southern Baptist tradition in the South. And Southern Baptists, right, they have a very complicated legacy. In fact, a very tragic legacy around the conversation with race, right? The formation of the Southern Baptist Convention was so that people could keep the old racial bifurcations alive, But over the last couple of decades, Southern Baptists have been working really hard in the realm of reconciliation. Fred Luter, uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the last decade, African-American pastor from New Orleans. Ooh, New Orleans. This has been a lot of hard work to have these generous conversations together about what it means to primarily be the people of God. That becomes the mega identity, the hope, right? And then everything else is subservient to it. But the last several years have tested the limits of the reconciliation happening within evangelicalism in general. What we have found is that for many people, the primary allegiance and belonging was not to church. Church Catholic with a small c. Universal church. Echad. Primary identity was to something else. This is part of the reason why when I look, right, whenever I open this sacred text and read anything that might be in red letters and think, what is Jesus calling us to listen to and say today? I'm aware of when it codes along partisan lines. And I know the emails that I'm going to receive because even when we're trying to make this story the center, 
We are always stepping in and being pulled by other identities. And reconciliation, the bringing back together, making true the achad of God in the world, is going to be uncomfortable. Just like you're feeling right now, right? Everyone's feeling uncomfortable. Welcome. This is the gospel. We made it. Let's see if we can keep going together. We are quite divided. Christina Cleveland does a beautiful job of explaining why with cognitive psychology and other kinds of tools. Our divisions are so glaringly obvious. I don't, I got off Facebook and Twitter because I just couldn't handle it anymore. But it's so obvious that outside, right, outside agents and forces can see the division and exploit it. Why? To codify bases and to stoke fear. So that we might become malleable and can be pointed in a direction. And Jesus is crying from the hilltops. Oh, Israel. How I longed to gather you. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So if we're going to be about this And we have to be if we're actually following Jesus. We have to be. Or we're doing something else, and it's not church. We should just say that. But if we're going to follow Jesus, then we're going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because if our primary identities are in anything other than Christ, then the first thing we have to do is kill it. This is the language of losing your life so that you can find it. There is deep wisdom in what Jesus has been saying. This is the line that I've sat with. We have not yet lost all we must in order to gain all that we need. After Jesus prays for the unity of creation, Jesus submits himself to the dismembering tendencies of that creation, falls full into the story of our disunity until it tears him to releases and relinquishes everything loses everything and Jesus tells his followers if you are going to follow me this is the path then we have not yet lost everything we must I know it's asking a lot of you to believe Jesus more than whatever voice you've been listening to. I know it's a lot. Because I get you for one hour, right? Worship is for like an hour and 15 minutes. And then the world is forming us and forming us over and over again. I don't know how many hours of television I'm competing with here or the gospel is competing with here. But it is difficult work to ask you to believe 
that Jesus is first and primary. I know because I'm trying to do it and it hurts. There are other things I would like to believe in. They are more expedient and they cost less of me. This costs everything. And I've got plenty of ego to spare. You can borrow some if you would like. (laughs) To die is painful and it's uncomfortable. It's been said that one of the reasons, maybe even the principal reason that Jesus gets killed is because Jesus undoes the primary identity the people of Israel, which is family. Right? The story, Jesus, your mom wants to talk to you. She's outside. And then Jesus says, like, look, this is my mother and these are my siblings, the ones who do the will of my father. This language of leaving that family to enter into the family of God. Jesus is asking us to reconsider who we belong to. This is what Bonhoeffer was talking about. That if our understanding of Christian community is grounded in anything other than the person of Christ, then it is not Christian community. God has already created the circumstances by which we might be reconciled. We have been made whole. We are echad. We don't have to do anything to be echad. But believe it. And in our believing it, it becomes visible for the world to see. And when we doggedly hold to it, when we feel the separation and the divorce happening, and we yearn for God and we pull it back, when we reconcile, we practice and we practice and we practice saying, I'm sorry, saying, I'm sorry, saying, come home. We make it true. We make it transparent. We're not selling people on this Jesus thing. They just see this Jesus working in us. This unity will not be clean. It will be messy. Because it is not uniformity. And we had our Abco Flash meeting here recently, our big American Baptist gathering. We got to host it. One of the things that we realized in the planning committee is that our denomination in Southern California is changing in a beautiful sort of way. When asked where the leadership is coming from, it's not coming from the normal places. It's coming from our communities of color, from our Latino churches where things are happening. Things are happening. And so we asked them to come lead, gave up the stage and stepped away and listened and watched and sang and prayed with them. It was messy. We had packs in the back that were translating from Spanish back to English in the other way. It was not uniformity. It was diversity. It was plurality. And it was beautiful. And God was present. This all goes back to who God is, who we know God to be, this unity within plurality, and then who we are invited to be, this true essence of God 
in triune form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's back to where we started with the Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, hear, O church, the Lord your God, the Lord my God, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. May it be so, even today. Would you pray with me? God, we approach this truth with trembling hearts because we know that it will entail us letting go of things that we have found very important. We confess, I confess, God, that I have looked for shortcuts to create cohesion. And that I have forsaken the messy and difficult work of reconciliation. I confess that my ego is in the corner, shaking for fear of dissolving into nothing. But let it be. Because what, what we want, God, is to find ourselves in relationship with you and the world as you dream it to be. Which means there is no longer an us and them, there is we. And you keep drawing the circle bigger until it holds all of us. So hold us now. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Tomas is a pastor in in a rural town, fairly isolated town where there's not a lot of economic opportunity. But Tomas is a person who's a, a skilled craftsman. And he actually learned how to make guitars. But he's lived there all his life and there's just not that many opportunities for him. So one day he came to me and said, could I take beekeeping? As it turned out, he became my main partner in teaching and training Mapuche beekeepers. And actually, his knowledge of beekeeping surpasses mine. We're in Temuco because it's an ideal place to be. This is the area of Chile where the majority of the Mapuche live. It's also ranked as a region with the highest poverty rate. We'd seen the great need for small business development or learning to generate income. Traditional Mapuche weavings, it's a big part of the, the culture. Out of that came a couple of cooperatives that, that Barb still works with that have helped women find markets for their products. One of the most important factors in a country's economic forecast is its teenage pregnancy rate. When you're talking about 11 and 12 and 13 year old girls um, having babies, um, in, from my perspective, that, that is an indication of abuse and, and neglect. Little girls need the same thing that we all need. Little girls need friends. They need an older adult who is interested in helping them develop their potential. Where is my heart? What is my heart? That's the very first lesson of the Talita Kumi Girls Club.
the curriculum is based on the seven classical Christian virtues, you know, faith, hope, and love, courage, uh, prudence, temperance, and justice. There's a passage in Exodus where it said that the people would not follow Moses because they were broken in spirit. Jesus talks about the gospel is for the brokenhearted, the broken in spirit. We're here to help people who felt like they were nothing know that they're created in the image of God and that they have a vocation to be productive stewards of God's creation. The best things that American Baptists are doing and have always done is, first of all, encourage and support and make possible long-term incarnational missionary presence. That is, missionaries who live in the culture, spend years developing relationships. It's also to provide for their support. Churches that give to the World Mission Offering can know that they have a relationship with that missionary, that they have a relationship also with the people that they serve. It's a way to participate actively and in a living way in the mission of God.